MacGyver was the lead character in the 80s television series. I haven't watched the newer one. Uh, but that series by the same name. And he's a secret agent. But not like James Bond. The show highlighted his intellect rather than you know, his suave demeanor or his combat skills. And what always amazed me was what MacGyver could do with very ordinary things. He was known for doing a lot with very little. So one time he diffused a rocket with a paper cut. He, he stopped an acid leak with chocolate bars. Stopped a radiator leak with egg whites. I don't know if that works or not. Somebody could test that one. Series was successful enough, though, that this character's name became a verb. To MacGyver something means to make, form, or repair something that is with whatever's conveniently on hand. So MacGyver could take candlesticks, a rubber mat, and an electrical cord, and he could imitate a defibrillator, if I could say that word. He, he took some old clothes, a parachute, a refrigerator, and some metal. He improvised his own glue and welding equipment, and he made a hot air balloon. So he didn't need James Bond's cue. He didn't need those fancy spy equipment. He could do the job with whatever was on hand. And that's how we serve Christ. We MacGyver it. And we, we take whatever he's given, and we use it to do the job we're, we're given to do. I'm not suggesting that you have to know how to do amazing things with whatever God gives you. Just that you need to do that. You need to use what you have. What he gives you, use that to serve him, to do your job. So we don't need crazy spy equipment. We can take paper clips and, and chocolate bars and whatever we have, and we can do the job that Christ gives us to do. And that's what we learn in our passage this morning, to use whatever the Lord gives you in service of him and his kingdom until your day of reckoning. We're in chapter 25, you could turn there, of Matthew, Matthew 25, and remember that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to complete the mission that he had for his first coming. So he was, gonna, he was going to die and rise again, and he then, as king, after his resurrection, with all power, all authority and power on heaven and, or in heaven and on earth, he was going to then give us our mission. So before that happened, he wanted to begin to prepare his disciples. And so it's clear, he tells his disciples from the beginning that he, even he did not know the day or the hour, but he did clearly know that there would be a delay. That's a theme actually in these chapters. There's a delay, and even he even hinted at the fact that that delay would be a long time in our passage this morning. So he wanted to help his, his disciples understand what to do in this in-between time, between his first and second coming. Now, they wanted to know the exact timing of things. That's, that's how this really got started. They wanted to know when he was going to fully establish his kingdom. But Jesus told them that wasn't, his, that wasn't theirs to know. They just needed to expect that his coming would be unexpected. They didn't need to know the exact timing. What they needed to do was be ready always. And to do the job that they had. As a disciple. Now, the first parable in chapter 25 focused especially on the readiness. And this parable is going to focus on doing our job. So this, this parable teaches us that what we're given isn't the key to success. So our key is faithfulness. That's what we focus on. No matter what we're given, we MacGyver it. We do whatever we, we can with what we have on hand and we do the job that he gives us to do. That's what Matthew 25 verses 
14 through 30 teach. They teach us to use whatever the Lord gives you in service to him and his kingdom until the day of your reckoning. So in this story, we learn one about the responsibility that we have to serve the Lord. And then we learn about this future reckoning. We're, we're going to have to give an account when he returns. And so we'll be judged at that reckoning on the basis of our faithfulness. So we carry out this responsibility that he's given us. And at that reckoning, understand what Jesus teaches here is that some professing followers will be rewarded, but some will be punished. Now, before we get into the parable, just like we, we saw last week, it helps to kind of know some background to this story in order to understand what it teaches. And this story is about a wealthy master who likely would have had many slaves, but who entrusts a portion of his, his wealth to three specific slaves. Now, slavery was, was very common in the first century, and that's why you hear about it in the Bible quite a bit. So we have to... We have to Mention it. It's mentioned a lot. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about slavery because it comes up so often in the Bible. And so it helps maybe to be reminded of what's going on in the first century. Uh, I mentioned before, first century slavery was not founded on racism or white supremacy. That's what later slavery was founded on. Slavery in Jesus' day, it was largely a matter of uh, these Ro- the Roman Empire conquering different peoples. And as they would conquer people, they would enslave them along with their women and, and children too. If they were fighting against an army, it wouldn't just take the soldiers. And those enslaved families then would have more children and those children would then be slaves. And so it came to be that one of the most common ways to become a slave in the ancient world was simply to be born into slavery. By this time... You have, in terms of the population of the Roman Empire, about a third of it are made up of slaves. And about a fourth of it are, are those who own the slaves. So you have this, this massive impact of slavery on the first century. It was a common practice. And it's true, when we think about slavery at this time, it is true that these, these slaves were considered somebody else's property. So there were masters who treated them deplorably. We don't want to hide that fact. The laws gave masters complete authority over their slaves, even over their lives. Slaves were thought of just, again, as property, and so they they didn't think they had any inherent human honor or dignity. But at the same time, what is very different between slavery in that time and the other slavery more recently we've we've known about is that, that slaves, many of them were educated. And they could serve as doctors, architects, shopkeepers, cooks, barbers, artists, actors, teachers, poets, administrators, writers, and philosophers. Just to name a few of their possible occupations. So the level of their opportunity was only restricted by their master's wealth and significance and what he wanted them to do. So it wasn't at all uncommon for a master to entrust to some trusted slaves part of his wealth. And that's what happens in the story. He entrusts his money to these slaves, these three slaves. Now, that, that's what a talent is. A talent is technically a measurement. So it, it often, it was used especially to measure precious metals. And likely in our story, the metal is silver. So you could think of a talent in our story as a bag of silver. We don't know exactly how much that was worth or how heavy it would have been a talent was. But we can think about it in terms of its buying power. So if you think about what a talent was, 
a talent of silver was equal to 6,000 days wages for a day laborer. So I did some calculations back in Matthew 18. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add a little bit to, for inflation and just to make it a round number. But we, we could say that a talent is 500, that's worth about $500,000 today. That's the approximation. So just to be clear, anybody listening to this, this, this story that Jesus tells, they would know that the master is not giving them this money. He's entrusting it to them. That they're, they're stewards that are using the master's money. And there is an implicit expectation that they do something with it. So listen for that. So let's take a look at the story that Jesus tells. In verses 14 through 18, we're going to learn about this responsibility that the slaves had, and it helps us understand our responsibility. Now, Jesus, when he starts off this story, he piggybacks on his first story in chapter 25. In the first verse, he gives this fuller introduction. He says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. In verse 14, he simply says, it will be like. He's referring to the same thing. You know that because he bases this on his conclusion to the last story in in verse 13. So verse 13 says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. He's referencing the coming of the Son of Man. He's referencing his coming in, in the fullness of his kingdom, which is what he's been talking about. All the way back to chapter 24. So he's continuing to stress their need to be ready to watch. He's saying, watch for it will be like a man going on a journey called his servants, and entrusted to them his property. So this master, he entrusts five bags of silver to one slave, roughly the equivalent of $2.5 million. To another, he entrusts two bags of silver, roughly $1 million. And to the third, he entrusts one bag. Again, that's approximately $500,000. So this is not pocket change. And Jesus is clear, this master's doing this, not arbitrarily, he has his reasons for doing this to each. He says that he distributed these portions to each according to his ability. He knew what each of these three slaves was able to do with this money. But he clearly intended them to do something with the money. Otherwise, their abilities wouldn't matter. He intends them to do something with each of these bags of silver. At the end of verse 15, Jesus says that the master went off on his journey... And then the very next word in the original text is the word we could translate it immediately. In the ESV, it's translated at once, and it's put later in the verse. But it points out this first slave didn't waste any time. He immediately got to, got to work. It says that he traded with the five bags of silver. Now, there was no stock market back then. There were no mutual funds. The idea what Jesus is describing here is that this, this slave engaged in business, probably like a merchant. The slave would have probably taken that money, used it to purchase items that he could then sell for a profit. That was what he was doing. So over time, over this long period that the master was away, he was able to double his money. He was able to turn that $2.5 million into $5 million. Verse 17 then says that the slave with two bags of silver did the same thing. He took up, again, some type of a business. He purchased merchandise that he could sell for a profit. And he was able to double his money. He turned his $1 million into $2 million. And then in verse 18, Jesus contrasts what these first two slaves have done with what this third slave does. The third slave's doing something different with his entrusted share. He took his bag of silver, and he did what many people in Jesus' day did with their, their treasures. He buried it. 
chapter 13, there was a small, short little parable that Jesus told about buried treasure. This was very common. There were no banks. This is how people kept their valuables secure. They buried them in the ground. But, clearly, that is not what the master intended. So, you're listening to this, you would know, that, that, that slave's doing the wrong thing. Now, before we get into more of the story, let's think about the comparison Jesus is making between his disciples and the kingdom and this, this master and his three slaves. It's not hard for us to put together that the master represents Jesus. That's consistent with these other stories. Back in the end of chapter 24, he had this short little story about a master and his slaves. And it's very clear in that passage that the son of man... He's the master. Jesus is the master who comes at a time when these two slaves did not expect. And then the parable of the beginning of chapter 25. There, the bridegroom is the one who, he goes away, and he comes back when these ten young women didn't know he was going to come back. He's putting himself in the position of the bridegroom. He's the one who goes away and comes back. Well, here it's the same thing. He is the master who's going on a journey, but he's going to return. So the slaves are then his professing disciples. They're the ones he's leaving behind. They're the ones he's giving this special mission to eventually. But before we think about their mission, just want to, you might wonder about the legitimacy of comparing disciples to slaves. I mean, that could make you cringe, what we feel about slavery, which we rightly feel it's wrong. So how can, how can Jesus compare us to this institution? Well, on the one hand, again, we need to keep in mind that slavery directly impacted over half of the Roman world. And it indirectly would have impacted almost everyone else. So this was, this was a common reality. And you do need to understand that Jesus did not come to fix human governments. That was not his mission. He did not come to fix the problems in human governments. Jesus had come to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that wasn't going to take place immediately. He was coming this first time to initiate that by his death and resurrection. And that was going to be the means by which the citizens of the kingdom could enter. It was through his death and resurrection that anyone enters the kingdom. But it wouldn't be until he returned that he would completely set that up. So, so Jesus' mission was not to make the world a better place. Jesus' mission was to transform the world through his death and resurrection. He, he was not going to transform the world by fixing human rule. It was only going to be perfected by his direct rule. So that's why slavery remained in place. And, and the other reality we have to consider when this kind of a comparison is made, is that it's incredibly hard to compare human relationships with our relationship with God. God is on a completely different level than us. He's our creator. He, he is not our equal in any way. And so when you compare relationships, human relationships, to try to picture our relationship, none of them are accurate. To compare God to our king, well, it's, it's not really fair because a king does not ensure the existence of, of, of his subjects at every second. God is our creator who does that. He's more than just a human king over human subjects. There's, there's a distance there. And the reality is that our dependence on God 
is a lot closer to a slave's dependence on their master than anything else human history had to offer. So even though it's wrong for humans to own other humans, it actually did provide a picture of our situation where we are entirely dependent on God. Every millisecond of our existence. That's why Paul could speak about our salvation in Romans 6, not as deliverance from slavery in general. He actually talks there in Romans 6 about our transfer of ownership from slavery to sin to slavery to God and righteousness. And Peter and Paul, they, they loved to, to refer to themselves as slaves of Christ. That's how they inter- introduced themselves in their letters. Paul even referred to other Christians as fellow slaves. It's often translated servants to kind of help us because of our bad associations with slavery. John makes the same reference to Christians as slaves of Christ in Revelation. So, just it's clear, this is not the only image that we come to understand our relationship to God. There is, of course, the image of being adopted in Christ. But it is a perfectly appropriate way to think about our relationship to Christ. We are Christ's slaves. We're those who are entirely indebted to Christ. We have no right to dictate any part of our life. We listen to him completely. He is our Lord, our master. We do whatever he tells us. Christians are by definition those who have denied themselves, denied what they want for their lives, picked up their cross, their implement of execution, and followed their crucified and risen Lord. That's what we are. So as slaves of Christ, let's think about this responsibility that our master has entrusted us with. It's entrusted, the master in this story has entrusted his slaves with talents. It's easy to get off track at this point because we have a word in English that matches this Greek transliterated word. This Greek term is transliterated here, talent. We could say talenton more specifically. But it, it matches our English word talent, as in natural abilities. So it, it'd be easy for us to make a one-to-one comparison, just, just without even thinking, assume that a talent here represents our natural abilities. But that's actually clearly not what it directly represents. So the parable actually does point to natural aptitude. It, it mentions that we could translate verse 15 this way. To one he gave five bags of silver, to another two bags, and to another one, a, each according to his particular talents. That's actually where the talents are. So the bags of silver, they're, they're not simply talents, human abilities, skills. What do they represent? Well, think in terms of the mission that Jesus eventually gives his disciples. What is our mission? It's to make disciples. How do we do that? It, it happens as we, as a group, we baptize those who believe in Jesus so they can join local church and they can be part of this process of continuing to make disciples. We, we continue that process as we teach what it looks like to be a disciple, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Paul gets at the same thing in Ephesians chapter 4. He talks about the work of ministry. We're all involved in that work. And he, he explains that the, the goal of that work of ministry is to be mature in Christ. That's, that's what our, our mission is all about. So Paul puts it this way. He describes 
his role in this, mini- this mission in Colossians 1.24. Speaking of Christ, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So our mission is not more and more converts. Our mission is more and more who are more and more like Christ. That's our mission. We're all a part of that. How are we a part of that? Well, we walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. That's what Paul explains in Colossians 4 or 5. So we live out the gospel and we convey that gospel in words. He describes there as gracious and winsome, seasoned with salt. And we invite people around us to join us by faith to come join us through baptism bringing them into our membership into our accountability and then we all continue to be used as part of this mission by using our gifts that Christ gives us to help each other become more like Christ so our mission is not simply getting outsiders in it continues we each have a responsibility To help the people around us become more like Christ. To be more like him. So these bags of of silver. I think you could just say that they represent whatever Christ puts at our disposal. And so sure we can include talents. uh, But even more so we would include spiritual gifts. Which are not the same thing as talents. And we could say that we were using all these different things. But we need to understand that our job is not to establish Christ's kingdom over secular governments and culture. Christ is going to do that when he returns. We have no power to do that. That's not what we're trying to do. But we can be his instruments. We can be his instruments as, as the Holy Spirit expands Christ's rule in the hearts of kingdom citizens. And we can be used as a part of that. We can be used to expand that rule, Christ's rule, by bringing outsiders in. And that expansion continues to take place in insiders as they become more and more like Christ in the power of the Spirit. So, so we MacGyver it. We take whatever is at our disposal and we use it for this mission, for the sake of Christ. Again, that can include talents, spiritual gifts especially. It's our circumstances, whatever circumstances we're found in whatever relationships we have, and any opportunities we have for other relationships, future relationships, we pursue those out of love for the people around us with Christ as our focus. So we could say with Frances Havergal in her her well-known hymn, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. May every part of my life be set apart for you, Lord, for your sake. So take my moments and my days, take my, my hands and my feet, Take my voice, take my silver and my gold, take my intellect and will and love and take myself and I will be only, ever only, all for thee. That's what slaves do with their master. There's no limitations. There's nothing that we think belongs to us that we don't use for his sake. Use it all. And, and, and think about how generous this master is. Even the smallest amount that was given was $500,000. See, so he's, he's a loving, gracious master who's given us much to work with. And we use it all 
think about how our lives fit with Christ, how our lives can be used for Christ, whether that's socially, economically, or otherwise. So is that how you think? Is that how you think about your life? Is that how you think about what goes on? Is it how you spend your time? Is it how you spend your money? Is it how you think about your relationships? Is it ever only all for Christ? Why does it matter? Well, let's look at why it matters. That's our responsibility. We're to use whatever the Lord gives us in our service for him. And we do that until our day of reckoning. That's what the story goes on to talk about. The slave's reckoning. Verse 19 says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. That's what a reckoning is. You're, you're having a time where your account is settled. What you've done is evaluated. And there are two results of this reckoning, this evaluation. There's a reward for two of the slaves and punishment for one of the slaves. So verses 20 through 23 show us the reward. Slave who was given five bags of silver. He comes forward and he, he brought his extra five bags of silver. He has a t- total of ten bags. Put in modern terms, he says in verse 20, Master, you entrusted me with $2.5 million and I've used that to make an additional $2.5 million. Here is your $5 million. And then that servant, you can hear how joyful the master is as he responds in verse 21. He says, well done, Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the slave who was given two bags of silver, he he gets up and he gives his report. He says, Master, you entrusted me with one million dollars. I've doubled it. Here is your two million dollars. And then that servant hears an identical response at verse 23. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the the joy of your master. Think about what Jesus has done here. Listen to this commendation. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't say, well done, good and prosperous servant, good and successful servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the key. They've done what is good on the one hand because they did what their master did thought was best. They didn't do what they thought was best or what others tell them is best. They did what their master, who is goodness itself, what he taught them to do. And they're not judged on the basis of the result, the amount of the result. They're judged on the basis of their faithfulness with what he's given. So some are given more. And those with, with whom are given more, that there's more expected of them. We're not in charge of that. We're not in charge of what we're given. So we're supposed to take whatever we're given and be faithful with it. We're not supposed to try to make more of ourselves. The key to this is to maximize what what the master has given us to do for him. So we're doing with whatever he gives. It, It all belongs to him. We're using that. We're not supposed to focus on our own individual impact. We're supposed to focus on our own individual impact faithfulness. And so the servant with five bags gets the same commendation as the servant with two bags. The overall yield's different. I mean, one of them clearly does more for the master. That, that's, that's the reality. 
But that was in the hands of the master at the very beginning. What he was given, what both of them were given to do, it was distributed, it was determined by the distribution of the master. So he wasn't concerned about the amount of success. He was, he was focused on faithfulness. So ambition's a tricky thing. I've mentioned this before. See, the lack of any ambition, well, often that's just synonymous for laziness. And we're going to see that with the third slave. But all too often, what, what we can think of as ambition for Christ can, can become something different. It becomes more about ourselves, what we're accomplishing for Christ. So we're not always content with the two bags, and we do whatever we can to scrounge up some more bags. So we're equal with the, the Christian with five bags. And this is a real issue with pastors. This is something I have to keep an eye on. Pastors can easily compare our ministries. As though we're all supposed to have the same ministry, the same kind of success. And the same can be said about any church and anyone in the church. Churches don't look the same. For his sovereign reasons, God has given some churches more. And it's not up to us to try to make our church the same as other churches. We shouldn't even be wishing that we had more. That, that's not what's important. Our job is to be faithful with whatever God gives to maximize whatever we have. And we, we don't have to have the fancy gadgets. We don't all have to be James Bond. We have what we need. We just need to MacGyver it. We need to use whatever's on hand to complete the mission. And then we do that. We receive this well done. And it, it really is good and right for us to long for the commendation of our, of our master. That is a good thing, to want to please the master. Now, that can be a difficult thing, though, to, to say, I, I want to hear the master praise what I've done because it can easily turn into something that's not good. I, I really think... C.S. Lewis did a, a good job of explaining this. And I've quoted this before. But in, in his talk called The Weight of Glory, he said, I am not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions or how very quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment before this happened during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing with no taint of what we should now call self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. So what joy we will experience when we hear good and well done, good and faithful servant. Not because we're eager for attention, but because we've done what we were supposed to do, what we were made to do. We pleased the one who made us. And look at what awaits us. This master, again, referred to the 2.5 million and 1 million as little. So imagine what the must, the, the, the much must be like. I mean, it has to be well beyond that. So whatever we've, we've experienced in this life, whatever the blessings are that we've experienced that we're supposed to use for 
serving him, we're going to have all the more in the future to serve him with. To enter into his joy. This is when we're going to share in the supreme joy of our master. So it's worth it. This reward is worth the effort now. And what's the alternative? Jesus shares that in verses 24 through 30, where you see the punishment. In verse 24, this third slave steps up. Now, we've been paying attention. We know the third slave did not do what he was supposed to do. He's done the wrong thing. But listen to how he describes what he's done. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. So he's not being differential in any way. He's not being respectful. He's talking in ways that any first century person would be shocked by, that a slave would ever talk this way to their master. He's saying, Master, I knew you were a demanding man. You never put an ounce of sweat into the planting or harvesting, but it all goes to you, every last grain. So I, was, I wasn't about to risk losing any of your precious money. I was afraid that if I did, you'd punish, punish me severely. So here you go. I don't want to have any more to do with your money. It's all there, every last cent. That's the sentiment. It's not as though this, this master responds in a way that shows us. It's not like he's mistaken, innocently, like, oh, I, just, I was confused. I didn't know what you wanted me to do. The master's very clear. He knew what he was supposed to do. This is not a matter of, of misunderstanding or a mistake. He has rejected his master's intentions. He's refusing to do anything for the advantage of his master. He thinks his master takes advantage of him. So he's, he's self-centered in his concern not to take any risk. He don't want to take any risks for the sake of his master because he doesn't really love his master. So what does his master say about him? He says, oh, you, you poor confused slave. You, you just misunderstood. I thought that's not what he says. He says, it's, this is wicked and lazy. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. And then he says, you, you knew that I reap where I, I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. You, you knew that, did you? If you really knew that, you wouldn't have buried the money. If this master really was this hard man who reaped what he, where he hadn't, hadn't sown and gathered where he hadn't scattered, well, then he would, of course expect there to be a return in what he had given. He would expect to reap something from this slave. So he's calling his bluff. And he gives him a low-risk investment option. He's saying, if you you really knew that, then you should have invested your money with the money changers because then you would be sure to have what I gave you and still a little interest. He's acknowledging on the one hand that, that, yeah, Taking up a business, there is risk there. But you could have still loaned your money to money changers. That's, that's, there were no banks. It's the closest thing to a bank-level security and interest. You give it to those people that are exchanging money with the, the numerous Jewish people, for example, who came to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. They had to exchange their money to have the right, the right money for the area. And they would do that for a fee, like experience here so if he had done that he would have been able to get 
the exact money back plus a little more. It wasn't as much as you'd get through a business, but it would have been something. And so then he, he mentions the punishment. The bag of money he was given is taken from him and given to the first slave. And then Jesus explains what, what's happening with the saying. He actually mentioned the saying, saying back in chapter 13. He says, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So putting that into the context of this story, we understand he's saying that the one who has done something with these blessings he's been given, even more will be given to him. But the one who has done nothing with it, has nothing to show for all these blessings, even those blessings that he's, he had been given will be taken away from him. And then he, he illustrates what that means in verse 30. This, this slave is not even simply wicked and lazy. At this point, he says that he's worthless. In other words, he, he has not done anything for the mission. He has been useless with this mission. And so the master says, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's excluded from the kingdom. He's sent away from the light of his master into that place where, where there's nothing but pain and horror that he describes here as, as regretful, bitter, weeping, and agonizing gnashing of teeth. It's a devastating end. But understand how fitting it is. We were created as image bearers. We were created like the sun, is, or like the moon to the sun, to reflect the sun's light. We are to reflect the goodness of God. That's how we were made. To be like his righteous and loving character. But humanity said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to come up with our own de definition of what is good. And that's what we've done. We live our lives the way we want to live them. And we have made a mess of ourselves and God's world. So Jesus came to rescue us from that. Not, not simply to provide forgiveness for our sins. That is absolutely what he's done. But also to create, to recreate us in his image so that we do what we were made to do from the start. He did that through his death and resurrection. He did it for everyone who turns their course, turns away from the direction they're headed, turns from just trying to decide life for themselves and recognizes that was wrong. And I need to listen to Jesus who believes that he came to rescue them and who began to follow him. So think about how crazy this, this third slave's actions were. I mean, his master had taken ownership of him for his service. He is supposed to serve his master. That is who he is. That's his identity. To serve his master for his good pleasure. To do what is good. To make disciples. To make people who are following Jesus, to do that through our witness and then to continue to do that through our gifts so that we become more and more like him. And the slave refused to do that. He refused to do his purpose and function. He refused to do the whole point to his being included as a kingdom citizen in the first place. So why should he get to enjoy the kingdom? He shouldn't. 
So I, I would urge anyone here who, who's just living life and thinking, you know, I, I can figure out what's good for I don't need to listen to the Bible. I need to listen to Jesus. I have a pretty good understanding of, of what is right. Just understand that is absolutely, categorically evil. And you need to turn from it. And you need to recognize that there's a loving master who gave his life to rescue you from this mess that you are responsible for. Now I urge you to turn from that and to, to trust in him. He's good, he's gracious, he's loving. He died to rescue sinners. He rose again to give us life. Believe that. Listen to him. And, and then use whatever he gives you for the sake of him and his kingdom. And do it all the way until your reckoning day. Uh, there, there's a, a comedy sketch by Monty Python about the bubonic plague. In this, in this sketch, there's a man walking alongside a wheelbarrow that's getting pushed through the town. And the wheelbarrow already has a pile of bodies from the bubonic plague. And so the man's yelling out like a vendor at a baseball game, bring out your dead! It's just this very callous way of looking at it. But this other gentleman comes up and he says, here's one. And so the body collector asks for a payment to take the body away. And, and as he's doing that, the body yells out, I'm not dead yet. So the two go back and forth. The one who's trying to get rid of the other one, he's, he's saying, just take him anyways. He's as good as dead. And the other one's saying, I can't take him like that. He's still alive. And this whole time, the, the other gentleman that's just heaped over this guy's shoulder trying to get rid of him. He, he's screaming out, you know, I, I'm getting better. Saying, I don't want to go on the cart. I, I feel fine. I'd like to go for a walk. I mean, it really is terribly callous, but it's absurd. Man, it's absurd. The whole scene is absurd. But consider this. We've been given these lives for the sake of Christ. And, and we're to give everything as we look forward to entering into his joy. Do you know there are, there are professing Christians who have worked hard for a time, but they seem to have gotten to a point where they sit back and, and they try to enjoy some form of retirement. They're done. They put in their time. They did what they were supposed to do. And now they'd like to start the enjoyment part. They're like the, the gentleman, though, that's over the, the man's shoulder. They are as good as dead in terms of their usefulness to the master. So if that's the case, if people are done, well, maybe somebody should bring the cart by the church so we can toss a few more bodies on, even if they're not fully dead yet. They're not useful. Now, it's true that your service for Christ it's going to change throughout your life, especially as you get older. That is absolutely true. But it never ends in this life. You should never, ever think, I already did that. You still have to MacGyver it. Even if what you have on hand isn't the same as what you used to have on hand. It's whatever you have on hand. You may not be able to do what you used to be able to do. That is, that's reality. But you're still not standing before Christ yet. 
And that means you still have some investing to do. Still have a part to play in this disciple-making mission. It's all about others in this mission. You still have a sphere of influence. You still have people around you that you can point to Christ. You still have people in this church who can look up to you. You still have people in this church who need to be encouraged to keep going. To not look back, to not lose heart. You may not be able to do the same things. But you can do something to encourage people around you. Whether they're outside to encourage them to come inside. Or whether they're inside and need to be encouraged to keep following Jesus. You can show love. And you need to show love. You need to show them that they need to keep becoming more like Jesus just as you do. So use whatever Christ gives you for the sake of him, for the sake of his kingdom, until your reckoning day. And do not quit before then. Join me in prayer. Father, we recognize that we'd say with Paul, who's sufficient for these things? And yet that's the beauty of what you've done. We're, we're not sufficient. We're not even supposed to think in terms of our sufficiency. It's all about you. You've given us so many blessings. And you intended us to use these blessings for the sake of your son, for the sake of this kingdom, for the sake of enjoying life with you. This is a short time that we're here. A few days. Just, just moments. Help us to, to say back to you, take my moments and my days. Take every last bit of it. Take my intellect, take my will, take my strength, take my voice, take everything in me. Take my, take my money, take everything. Use it. Help us to think wisely about how we use whatever you've given us. that that's why we're here we're not here to try to enjoy as much of this life as we can we do enjoy things in this life but that, that's not our purpose our purpose is to serve you to serve your son all the way until we enter into his joy pray by your word and your spirit that we would do that anyone here who's under the illusion that they, they can determine what is best for themselves, that they would turn from that, turn quickly. They would recognize their need for Christ. Amen.